Merry Christmas to you all. I know that many of you are, are busy getting ready for tomorrow. And where are the kids? Kids, are you excited about tomorrow? Are you excited? Have you been keeping your mom and dad up late? Have you been driving them nuts? Are you a little jacked up these days? Moms and dads, yes. <laughs> well, I want to speak tonight, just real briefly, to two groups of people. Because I found myself in both of these this Advent season. Um, the, the first is to those who might feel distracted. And what I mean by that is you've gone through the entire Christmas season and you find yourself going, oh my goodness, it's Christmas Eve. Like I have had, other than right now at this moment sitting down, this is probably the first moment I've had a chance to think about, oh my goodness, like Jesus, we're supposed to celebrate Him. <laughs> maybe you're numb, maybe you've just been overrun by everything that's going on, you're in deadlines, the malls, whatever it may be. You're numb, you're tired, maybe even you're apathetic. You put it on holiday autopilot. And we do this every year. Spoiler alert, a baby is born. I know what's going to happen. So maybe you put it on autopilot. But maybe some of you are on the other end of the, the spectrum where you're really hungry. And I don't mean physical hungry, but you just want more. It's just been a really hard season for you. And I want to start with those of you that feel a little bit distracted. On Sunday, I was visiting the Lansdale House Church that just multiplied. And I was with the adults for a while. And then I went in and, and let those who were with the kids go in and join the adults. So I was with the kids. And I love word searches. Carter and I do word searches all the time. And this is the one that Savannah by Lucky and I were doing together. Savannah's good with word searches. She likes them too. So we were looking at this. And she was just blazing through them. And then she tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Can you help me with one? I'm missing one. I can't find one. And I said, Which one is that? And she said, I can't find Jesus. And so we searched and searched. And after five or ten minutes, I said, Savannah... This couldn't be more ironic, but Jesus isn't in the word search. <laughs> and she gave me a copy of this because I said, that dog will hunt. It, isn't this how some of us feel? We can do everything during the Christmas season. We can find everything. And some of you are sitting there going, Jerry, you're wrong. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. And if you do, tell me, but I don't think it's up there. <laughs> I think there are two J's in there, and none of them have an E or an S and a U and an S next to it. All that to say, isn't this the description of what a lot of us feel? We circle everything on the calendar. Everything's there except one thing. Anybody see it? Please tell me. Please tell me. I, I'm not as crazy. Somebody tell me I'm not crazy. It's up there, right? It's not up there. But that dog will hunt, won't it? That's this time of year. How interesting. We do all sorts of things and all this preparation. We circle this. We prioritize that. And we neglect the one for whom our attention deserves the honored guest. Now kids, how many of you have a nativity scene under your tree? Do you have that? Manger scene? Do you have that? Do you call it a manger scene or a nativity scene? Nativity, some mangers, alright. Well, this is ours. This is under our tree. I took this yesterday. Now, what's really cool about this one is when I studied in Israel, in Jerusalem, and when I was in college for the semester, go back a slide, when I studied there, I actually was uh, went to Manger Square. The only thing I wanted to buy during that time was a manger scene. 
So I went to Manger Square, right in the, the main area there in Bethlehem, and I actually watched an Arab gentleman make this. And when he was done, I said, I'd like to buy that. How much is that? And he sold it to me. In fact, every year we wrap it up in the same uh, Arabic newspaper that I bought it in, so it wouldn't break. And this is what sits under our tree. Now, does anybody have the tradition of actually hiding baby Jesus until Christmas morning? Anybody do that? We just heard about this recently. I think it's a German tradition and, and, and some other cultures where, as you see in there, there's no baby Jesus. And just last year, we actually decided to hide it. And we'll actually bring that out tomorrow morning. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But some people, that's their normal tradition. You never put baby Jesus out because we're waiting for His coming. But, have you ever noticed how weird the nativity scene is? I mean, seriously, it, it's weird. And we're going to look at some of those things. And if you've sort of put on autopilot this holiday season, I want to jolt your understanding of the nativity scene just a tad. And as I've been thinking about this, this romanticized view of the manger scene, and maybe because it's been romanticized, it's lost some of its punch for us. And maybe if we're honest, we become a little bit cynical. Or it feels a little bit more like a fable than a real flesh and blood reality. And maybe we need to see the manger scene for the first time again. So I'm going to deconstruct this a little bit for you. And this is uh, this, how weird the manger scene is. And th- this, I was thinking about this. And then Ange Fried sent this to Doug and I. Uh, Doug and me. Just a, a link to this article that's written by a guy named Joe Kay. And the title of it is, Why Are Manger Scenes So Weird? Now think about it. Mary, in most of the manger scenes, maybe not this one. But in most of the manger scenes, she looks so amazingly calm and rested, so put together. And some of the moms are probably thinking, really? Are you serious? You'd attest that probably the time you felt least rested and least put together, (laughs) quite medically, (laughs) is probably right after you've given birth. Joseph, standing there looking all calm and all manly, with a staff or a lantern in his hand, all cool and calm. I doubt cool and calm would be the top two emotions that he'd be feeling with all that was surrounding this, this birth of this baby. And Jesus, never crying, full head of hair, arms out like he's getting ready to belt out a Christmas hymn. So as the author of this article said, quite bluntly, what the heck? <laughs> if our manger scenes were realistic, he said, Mary would be recovering from a painful labor full of sweat and blood with a look on her face that was anything but serene. And Joseph, wouldn't he be a nervous wreck too? His hand too shaky to even hold a lantern? And how about that newborn? Shouldn't he be red-faced and screaming? Eyes clenched, closed, and wisps of hair stuck to the top of his head that's still odd-shaped from all that squeezing? Instead, we've sanitized and romanticized it. We've removed all the blood and sweat and tears and pain and goo. It's no longer something real. We've left out all the messy parts. The, oh my God, what now parts. And the, I'm screaming as loud as I can because it really hurts parts. And the, oh no, I've just stepped in animal droppings parts. And not to burst your nativity bubble more, but let me keep going. Archaeologists have been studying Israel for a long time. Do you realize they've never found an above ground wooden structure from the first century? Ever. And why is that? Because there are rocks everywhere and hardly any trees. 
No one built above-ground wooden structures in the first century. It just was too expensive. It was just not wise. There just wasn't enough there. And this idea of no room in the inn doesn't mean that the Holiday Inn had a no vacancy sign because they had this surge of reservations put out on Travelocity. No inns were called homes. Many homes were built on the side of a mountain and you can see the rolling hills of Bethlehem even today. And what happens is there are, there are caves that are pockmarked all along these hillsides in Bethlehem. And what you do is you'd actually build a house above a cave. And as you built it, it would just be one room. But you'd have that cave underneath as kind of a, a basement garage. And you'd put your animals in there to keep them out of the cold and out of the rain. And as we just read about a census and everyone coming and the tribe of David, you know, that Joseph and Mary... We're coming, so there's all these people coming to register. You've got extended family and relatives and moms and dads and cousins and grandmas and grandpas that are coming, probably staying in one home, in one inn. And let me ask you something, moms. If you had all your cousins and grandparents and nieces and nephews all running around and you were about to give birth in a one-room house, would you want everything exposed in that time of delivery among screaming kids who are running all around that small place? No. So as a gift, there was no room in the inn because there were all relatives around to go down in the stable. It sounds disgusting, but it was actually great privacy for mom. And Jesus, being most likely born in a cave that pockmarked the hillsides of Bethlehem, caves where animals would live and come out from the cold or the rain. Well, a group of us were hiking in April... We were hiking in Israel in the northern part around Galilee in a place called the Cliffs of Arbel, the Arbel Cliffs. When we got to the bottom, we actually saw a few caves. Now, this isn't the Arbel Cliffs. This is just another place around Bethlehem. But we saw some caves. And some of us decided to go up near it. And we went, oh, wow, we're not going to go in there. The smell of cow urine and sheep feces was just overpowering. Damp, musty, and moldy as well. And to think, there are no sanitized caves that exist in most of Israel. The pungent smell, maybe in the first century, the soot of burn marks on the roof of the cave as shepherds would come in with their torches to get out of the cold or out of the rain as well. This is where the conditions of the Son of God. This is where He was born. Our nativity scene is weird. doesn't mean it's bad, but it can sometimes take the life out of what actually happened on a night like tonight. So Bethlehem being six miles outside of Jerusalem. Again, you see the terraced, the hills there. This is Bethlehem today. The story of Ruth and Boaz happened in Bethlehem. King David as a shepherd boy. It was a lamb-raising community. Shepherds were commonplace. Why? Because three times a year, sacrifices were made at these festivals where everyone would come. But people would come regularly to offer sin offerings. And they'd offer lambs or sheep. 
Now, Jerusalem was too populated to have thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep everywhere. So what did they do? They had to have them raised on the outskirts of Jerusalem. On the outskirts of Jerusalem, six miles away, is a little place called Bethlehem. So it raised them to maturity. They'd raise them to health, and then the shepherds would actually walk them on the road, and they'd walk them six miles to Jerusalem, where they would be sold, and then they would be slaughtered and offered as sacrifices. And this would happen. Every time you sinned, you needed a chance to offer a lamb or a sheep on behalf of your sin at the temple, and the priest would say, your sins are forgiven. Now how about those shepherds? Shifty, dirty, shady. Considered religiously unclean because they were unable to participate in temple activities and unable to participate in synagogue life because they couldn't leave their sheep. They were stuck out in the hillsides. And oftentimes, shepherds were not only seen as irreligious and shady, they were also seen as young. They were either teenagers or young teenagers. In fact, this, this blows people's minds, most shepherds were probably girls. Now, think of Brianna Phelps, and that would be what you should think of when you think of a shepherd. <laughs> and one of Bethlehem's most famous inhabitants was the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, David. King David, who started out as a shifty, shady little shepherd boy. Now, think about it. Think about it just for a minute. The God of the universe who's been waiting to roll out his plan of world redemption, chose to go first, first, not to the most influential, but to lowly teenage shepherds who were seen by the religious as being shady. Now, if we think about that long enough, it's actually controversial. <laughs> and if we think about it even longer, we actually can see, whoa, God must really love us. And for those of us who may not need our Christmases jolted, <laughs> you may be on the other end where you're just feeling really hungry. You're longing for, mo for more. You've had a hard year or a hard few weeks or you've been rattled and heavy-hearted and anxious about the tragic events of Montgomery County the last week or two. And some of you experienced the stress of the holidays of time with estranged family members or loneliness, or another year of unfulfilled hopes and expectations. And maybe for you, you've not left Jesus out of the picture. You're just quite frustrated that Jesus isn't more a part of your picture. And just like the Israelites who hungered and worried in the wilderness, wandering and wondering if God would take care of their needs, God, I thought you cared for us. We're stuck in the middle of the wilderness. What's going on here? And God says, I'll take care of you. And they said, how? How? How are you going to do that? And He provides this thing that falls on the desert floor every morning, this weird stuff called manna. And here's a picture of manna today. You can actually make manna. Or manna recipes. This is what they believe manna is. And then they, and it says they cooked it and I found this, that someone actually did this with their kids and they cooked it and it says they ate it with honey 
and it actually tasted sweet. That God provided them for them by providing this bread-like substance called manna. By the way, some of the kids may know this. You know what manna means? Quite literally, what, do you know what it means? It means, what is it? Like, manna, what is it? <laughs> so like, I, said that, I shared this with the kids a few months ago. And uh, Jaden goes, does that mean that we give money as a church to what is it on Main Street? And I said, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But it means what is it? Because they were walking around going, manna, 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 manna. What is it? They had never seen it before. But it was through that weird stuff, this bread that God provided for their needs. And just like later in the Old Testament instructions in the temple, God commanded this weird thing to be a part of worship. He said, I want you to bake the priest to bake 12 loaves of bread for the 12 tribes of Israel all the time. You go, wait a second. For worship? Yes. Absolutely. He said, the priest, part of his spiritual duty is to be a baker. I want you to bake bread in the temple. And this is called showbread. And this is what, um, based, uh, based go, go, go forward, based on uh, our, what the Old Testament says, this is what an artist believed, the showbread table, where they would store the twelve loaves, what, what they believed it would look like. Now, have you ever walked by a house and the smell of fresh baked bread is just wafting out of the window? You probably thought, somebody's home. Somebody's in this place. Have you ever walked by, walked in a house and as soon as you open the door, it just hits your nostrils? That smell of fresh bread? And you just said, oh man, somebody's been working hard in the kitchen and this smells great. Well, God met the Israelites in worship through the senses of their noses. Reminding them that as they smelled fresh bread baked in the temple, that they would say, God is home. God lives here and He's at work in this place. Isn't that great? Well, then several hundred years later, a baby boy is born in a postage stamp little town called Bethlehem. Now, I know the kids can help me with this because we talked about this just with the kids and me at the last gathering. Kids, what does Bethlehem mean? What does Bethlehem mean? It's a town. Do you know what the word Bethlehem means? What does it mean? Yeah, Carter? Yep, a, a, a house of bread. The house of bread. Beit Lechem. Beit meaning house. Lechem. In Hebrew, meaning bread. The house of bread. Now, in Arabic, Bethlehem, Beit Lechem, means the house of meat. The house of meat. So this baby boy, he would grow up and declare that he was the bread of life, was born where? The house of bread. Where was the bread of life born? Bakeryville. Bakeryville. And this baby boy, he would grow up and be called the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Where was he born? The house of meat. The house of lamb meat. Where is fresh lamb meat stored in a butcher shop? The Lamb of God was born in Butchertown. You think that's a coincidence? I think not. The bread of life in Bakeryville and the Lamb of God in Butchertown. And the thing we so often forget is that this baby boy didn't stay a baby boy. And Joe Kay, in this article, 
continued when he said, This baby grows into a man who hangs out with all the unsavory folks in his society. The ones that the religiously observant people called sinners. Poor people, dirty people, rough people, all sorts of social and economic outcasts. And he even turns fishermen, some of the roughest and lowest people, lowest people in the world, into his closest friends and followers. See, the bad news is this. About this whole idea of the world, especially as they knew it in the first century, that the human problem had no human solution because it is humans that is the source of the problem. Let me say that again. The bad news is is that the human problem has no human solution because it is humans who are the source of that problem. That's the bad news. We need a shepherd to guide us or we will be forever lost. And we need a bread of life or we will starve to death in the wilderness. And the good news is this, that the world's plan was interrupted by the conspiracy of living kindness, loving kindness because the rules just changed in a cave. That bread of life was born so we wouldn't have to starve to death. That shepherd who eventually would become the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world once and for all so you didn't have to go every time you sinned to the temple and offer a sacrifice because there's one person who did it as the Lamb of God who was raised where? In Bethlehem. It was brought to where? The temple. And was sacrificed as the Lamb of God who takes away all the sin of the world. As Dallas Willard says... When Jesus was born, we were finally giving, given access to the goodness and provision of an all-sufficing, want-erasing, fear-eradicating, peace-loving shepherd. That is what arrived in a manger. And if we have eyes to see it for the first time again, we realize we don't have to gloss, have glossy romantic glasses. But it actually was pretty nasty. It was pretty dirty. What ended up in that manger. The God breathed with life God is now available to us. Through this red-faced, screaming little baby boy birthed by an exhausted and recovering young girl who laid her son, God's son, in animal straw in a feces-ridden, urine-smelling, damp cave and knew that God had in fact come down in a tangible form to be among His people who are hungering for a different reality. Let that sink in for a moment. And at the end of His life, He gathered His disciples around Him and He said, Remember what I said about being the bread of life, guys? I want you to remember it so much that I'm actually going to do something that I want you to do regularly. I'm so much the bread of life that I'm actually going to break the life, my, the bread of my own life open for you to experience this. Because I am about to make a world-altering sacrifice of my own that will be the redeeming mark on the world. So we celebrate the bread of life coming among us. That's why we lit this middle candle. The bread of life is now among us. Not to the religious elite, but to the social and spiritual outcasts. Those of us in need of hope in a time of weariness. In fact, it's really kind of ironic the way it works. If Jesus thinks you have your stuff together, He says, fine, go ahead and do that. 
But for those of you who are hungering and desperate and leaning in, I'm here. Because the entrance exam to the Christian life is actually desperation. It's actually admitting we have a problem and wanting to lean in so that we can say, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to the world. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to North America. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to Pennsylvania. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to Montgomery and Bucks Counties. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to Lansdale. Rejoice, rejoice, for Emmanuel will come even to the North Penn Boys and Girls Club. And so he came down to be among us. This little baby. This little baby to be among us. Who loved us and cared for us so deeply. Ah, oh, look at him. What a world changer. What a world changer, buddy. Who gave of himself and said, I'm going to do this for you. And so we, in great joy, come to celebrate communion. And we do that with hearts filled knowing that this little baby actually reached his hands out not to belt out a Christmas tune, but to say, this is the same pose that I'm going to do when I'm older. When I reach my arms out in all vulnerability and say, I'm here for you. And he says, come. So I'm going to invite the Gribben House Church to come forward and Liam to come up as well. And as we sing, we want you to come up and to rejoice that this Emmanuel, this God with us, is now among us. This is what we celebrate here today. The God who was laid in a feces-ridden cave is now saying, I'm willing to do this for you. That's what we celebrate on a night like tonight. So I want to invite you, if you are here to receive grace and mercy from Jesus, you're welcome. If you think you have your stuff together and are in no need of Jesus, please stay seated. But, If you come with a heart that's desperate that says, I need Him and I want to celebrate Him and thank Him, we want to invite you to come and to come to enjoy this and to remember that sacrifice that He's done for us, which all started in the midst of a little tomb. Come and enjoy the bread of life. And when you come, don't take off just a little little piece. Take a chunk. We're not going to run out of bread, okay? Come and enjoy the bread of life together as we celebrate Emmanuel among us.